0: The Heirloom Group, the platform of chef partners in life and work, David and Tanya Thomas, explores the influence of African Americans on the food of Maryland and the whole country. We talk about it today. It's on Tip of the Tongue. tip of the tongue a podcast on the nitty grits network where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums this is liz williams we're here today with chefs david and tanya thomas the co-executive chefs of the heirloom group based in baltimore Besides having established award-winning restaurants, they are the engine behind the Heirloom Group, a 100% Black-owned company. They produce ticketed dining experiences, catering, pop-ups, and products. Welcome to you both. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: So tell tell me a little bit about your journey in food. How did you come to food, and then how did you come together?
2: (laughs) We always want to say, How long do you have? But no.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, be
1: a pretty long
2: yeah. Day. Well, our journey of food started differently. You know, David, his initial beginnings were in music. My initial beginnings were in art and fashion. Um, but, you know, eventually we wound up meeting each other, is the best way to put it. Meeting each other when he was still in music, he was producing music, but they also were where they would bring in musical acts into you know, the city. And at that time they were bringing in an act to Baltimore and they needed to fulfill the rider. And at that time I was dabbling a little in providing, you know, little catering, you know, to the places that I work and things like that. And he said, do you think you can fulfill this? And I said, yes, I can. So I did, you know, and then once he saw what I did, it kind of like ignited things in him and memories just being around me when I started doing more in food and started producing memories of his grandmother and her food. And that was just the start of it. And then we chose to move down a path together into food. And we started a catering company years ago, and that was the initial beginning.
0: Well, I think that it's so interesting to me. So many people started just by remembering grandparents and parents who- (laughs) being in the kitchen with family and everything. That's that's always the best way because it's not just this kind of, it is art. I'm not trying to say it's not, but it's not just that. It it, it has all of those other feelings involved in it, which I, I ah. think is so wonderful to share. So tell me a little bit about the heirloom group and how you came to do that. Because if we talk about everything that you've done, I think we will be here for a very long time. <laughs> I'm gonna jump ahead and, and <sighs> a little bit more about the Heirloom Group.
1: Well, the Heirloom Food Group is you know a company we started during COVID. Tanya and I were at our last restaurant and we had decided that we wanted to step away. So we sold our interest back to our um, partners at that time. And then we were at Africa for 10 days. We came back from Africa.
0: Where uh, where in Africa were you?
1: Uh, we were in Senegal, Senegambia. Mm-hmm. So we were there doing a research trip like we do. So we were there for 10 days. We came back. We had already let our partners know that we were, you know, we were stepping away. So we already got the ball rolling. And we got just back in the country right before um, they shut all the airports down nationwide. Oh, exactly. uh, so we made it back into the country just in time. Mm-hmm. Um, But then, you know, COVID hit, so the restaurant had closed down for a while, then they reopened, but we had already stepped away. But during that time, we had already started the process of working towards heirloom, not understanding completely what it was going to be, knowing that we wanted to be multidimensional. Because of our experience in food, we could do just about anything, so we knew that we were going to have a number of different things under the food group umbrella. So that's how it kind of started. With our business partners who were former clients that uh, we've just known for 10 years Uh from from our other restaurants, and we had done some private chef work for them and that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's how this sort of came to be, because we knew that, you know, we wanted to stay, you know, in the food business. Even though we walked away from the restaurant, we had these other ideas and Uh opportunities. So that's how we kind of got started. Um, Yeah.
0: And so what is it that you want to achieve through Heirloom? Well,
1: with Heirloom, you know, it's about, you know, and with all of the projects that, you know, Tanya and and I have been involved in, you know, almost from the very beginning, it's really about us not just reclaiming the narrative, but making people understand the contributions of African-Americans in food. And not only just African-Americans, but Marylanders more in particular, the Maryland African-Americans that have really, really helped shape the food scene of this country that is not even talked about. So for us, you know, our mission has always been to uplift the black food narrative, to make sure that people are aware of our contributions in the food scene, in agriculture in this country as well.
0: Yeah. So, so, let's about, so tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about especially Maryland, because I I can kind of see the overall Um, contributions of African-Americans to the food, especially the food of the South, but certainly to the food of America. But I'm not as familiar with it sort of granularly. It's state by state. Tell us about the Maryland contributions.
1: Well, I mean, I'll start with this. I'll let Tanya finish because I know she's probably chomping at the bit for this one. (laughs) Um, Most people don't realize because they just don't think back far enough. And think about the true origins of this country, understanding that Maryland was one of the first 13 colonies, you know, Mm -hmm. so it has one of the oldest food cultures in the country, understanding that the majority of the people that came in before the 1700s came in off the shores of the Chesapeake, whether it be Virginia or Maryland, that's where they first hit North America, so to speak. So we know that we've got one of the oldest food histories in the country, and then we go even further further. We trace that back to some of the founding members of food. For us, James Hemmings is that guy. Mm -hmm. Um, Former enslaved, was the cook for um, Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) was, you know, had his sister with him. We all know that whole story, but most people don't know that he's the first master chef of this country. You know, it's because of James Hemmings that we eat macaroni and cheese, that we have ice cream. Those are the things that this man brought here to us in terms of knowledge and technique, so we need to honor that. I mean, we need to let people know that, yeah, it's mostly other people, other than Africans and African Americans, that are getting credit for the food and culture that we created. So it is our job to make sure we right or wrong.
0: So how? Oh, I'm sorry if you you wanted to say something. I didn't want to stop you. you know, I mean, he, I, mean he,
2: <laughs> I mean he said you know a lot of information, and we always remind people that, you know, Maryland, Baltimore is older than this country, so that shows how old the history here and when it comes to food, and a lot of the things that people revere in this country, and they revere definitely back then, was out of, because of the waterways, and because of Maryland, and it's, it was called Little America for a reason, because it pretty much encompassed everything you can experience in this country, in this state. You know, you have the Appalachian, the right? Yeah, the topography, you know, the plateau area, the, the Appalachians, and then you have the waterways, and there's even some marsh areas. So you have so much that, you know, we are able to provide and produce out of this state alone, but it's is never been talked about. So we always try to highlight that as well. Even people that have been been born and raised here don't really know the information as well, but it's so much rich history even into the city of Baltimore, because Baltimore was one of those places that back in the 18th century that people would travel here because of of the cuisines and things they could get only in Baltimore and the chefs and the cooks that prepared it. And they were all, they were black chefs. They were black caterers. They were black cooks. They were known for their terrapins. They were known for the canvas back duck. They were known for their oysters. They were known for some of the baked items as well. But a lot of that is not highlighted and talked about. And, you know, people don't know and understand that rich history of Baltimore in this state. And also we embrace it and let people know, you know, Maryland is in the South too. Yeah. Maryland is a Southern state. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and we talk about it all the time. Yeah, you know? about all, it, Maryland we, is the, the northernmost Southern,
2: southern state.
1: state. <laughs> you know, We had the Union and Confederate soldiers in the same state. I mean, that's why Maryland is so unique. And if you talk about you know, some of the legacy, these food items that have come out of Baltimore, you talk about um, Emmeline Jones.
2: Emmeline um, Jones. It's a lot of history that we've been, you know, unearthing about certain people that were born here. They were known for, you know, their you know their cuisine and their dishes. She went up, you know, in New York in the end, and then you had some people that were enslaved or free you know you had so many it was both in in Maryland and Baltimore that was the unique thing about Maryland is how you had both the enslaved and free mm-hmm. in the same state mm-hmm. i you know,
0: i i think of baltimore growing up we we learned that baltimore was the sister city to new orleans and that there is lots of connections between the food between new orleans and Baltimore, other things too, but food is what we're talking about. So, yep, like Yakume. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and snowballs. And, <laughs> and snowballs, snowballs, right? exactly. Yep. snowballs, exactly. Yakume snowballs. Exactly. Right?
2: snowballs.
0: <laughs> so, tell me about the early interaction of the enslaved Africans and later African Americans who came to. Maryland and interacted with the native people because they're, I mean, people were eating in America before Europeans or Africans were brought here. So Mm -hmm. how did that kind of interaction uh, influence and sort of, Oh, you know, it seems to me that one of the things that has to happen is it makes people aware of what, what bounty is available right away because people Mm -hmm. are already uh, tapping into it. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, most people take the word culture out of agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot have agriculture without the culture of people. So, no matter where you go on this planet, agriculture is a mer- very important system of the life experience of our people, whether it's in Africa or on, on this continent here. The natives that were here, the, the indigenous folk, they taught us how to cultivate this land. You know, we came from Africa with a knowledge. Of farming, we came to the, from here. We came to here with an, a knowledge of agriculture, but what we didn't know was the seasons and the soil and all of those things that came from ancestral knowledge from the indigenous. So mm-hmm. when we came here, they were our partners. They made us understand what we could grow in what season, what things work better in what climates. We went from producing yams in the motherland to eating sweet potatoes. In America. But it was through those indigenous experiences that we had with them that we were able to have those relationships and get that information. So, without that indigenous information, without them helping us, none of us would have survived here. It is important that we acknowledge them. Tanya's ancestry comes from the Lumbee tribe. So, all the information that we put out when we talk about our people and the cultivation of food and things of that nature, we never leave out our indigenous brothers and sisters because. We wouldn't be here without them.
2: Everybody knows the Lumbee tribe is, you know, it's one of those tribes that hasn't really been registered when it comes to, you know, the natives, you know, the indigenous community. And that's because the Lumbee tribe is a, a merge of two cultures. And that was those that were native indigenous to this country and those that were either enslaved or free blacks. And the Lumbees have come out of that. you know. That's the history when it comes to North Carolina. It's a great history, it's a large history, it's quite a few of them. It's originating in North Carolina and we actually have a council here in Baltimore because there was so many people that migrated from North Carolina to Baltimore that they actually have here. So, and that is a part of my family. And trying to even research the indigenous history of Maryland, um, it's been tricky because so, so many of the indigenous people of Maryland were wiped out once the Europeans came here because of just disease and things that they brought and they couldn't fight it. It's, it's been interesting to find out how they feel like most of them had died off, uh, I would say like 18th century, like 1700s. But I'm sure there was traces of them still moving forward. But what doesn't help in the census is like if you just had a certain amount of blood, they would list you not as Native, they will list you as White, or they will list you as Black. So they almost lost their indigenous culture and their yeah. history within that as well. was well, purposely done yeah. too yeah. understanding.
0: Wipe them out, yes. No, exactly.
1: Well, we understand too, you know, white supremacy is prevalent and they wanted to make sure that their lineage lasted beyond what they considered mm-hmm. slaves, right? So they were under the same system that everybody else was in. So that's why that Lumbee tribe, like she said, has not been registered because of their black lineage. The natives here will not recognize that Lumbee tribe, um, which is just an atrocity. So we talk about it every time we can.
0: So, so it's, it's not registered only because of there's a blending of African blood and. and I don't
2: think they're considered as full-blooded yeah, natives they're not. They're not. because they they know that the, the tr- you know trace of you've researched back in history. How the Lumbee tribe, they, it wasn't, and forgive me because I can't remember off the top of my head. It did originate with a tribe, but because it then became the Lumbee tribe. And I know for the longest time, for years, even if you go to their website, they have always been working to get that recognized as, you know, one of the tribes in this country. Because I think a lot of them that are part of that culture, you know, how a lot of the tribes are able to, you know, re- receive resources and things like that. Well, this, the Lumbees can't because they're not registered um, as being as one of them.
0: And they're not registered with the the Bureau of India. Right, correct. Right, right. All that, okay. Okay, so yeah. it's not really other natives that won't allow it. It's the government. I mean, I oh, no, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the it's other because
2: I understand the council also is also the, led yeah. by natives as well. So it's, well, it starts you know, with the native population. right? I mean, yes. the federal government is going
1: to recognize whoever they recognize. Um, it starts with the native population like i said it it starts on the same guys they're under the same banner of white supremacy that everybody else is in and because of that they made it so that if you have any african blood in you that Lumby tribe was not going to get the same recognition as the other quote-unquote native tribes and so. i think
2: someone who knows this even even greater than i do just the work that she does is zella palmer because uh-huh. Zella, she's of Lumby. We always say we're going to meet up in North Carolina every year. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she has the history and she she knows that heritage as well because that's a part of her, her heritage.
0: Okay, well, that's really interesting to know. Do you know Zella was, when she was a student in Canada, she was getting a master's degree in museum studies. She did her internship with us at the <laughs> So I know Zella
2: really, really. You know, I know that. you do, Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's great. And she's now working as a guest curator on an exhibit that we're going to open in February. So Wow. Uh,
2: amazing. Yeah. So yeah, Zella's yeah. an amazing person and does great work. So
0: yeah, she definitely <laughs> does. Yes. Yeah. And she has a really kind of innovative way of thinking about things, which I mm-hmm. love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's get back, let's get back to the food. One thing that I'm really interested in in talking to you about. Is the specifics. So, you know, it's easy to talk about in a generalized way to say that there's influence that people who are descended from the enslaved Africans who brought their culture here and then that influenced the food. It's I mean, it's easy to say that. And I'm not saying that isn't true. I just say it's it's helpful, I think, to have the specifics to be able to point to this dish or this kind of food or or this technique or any of those things. Can we, so can we do that for for a minute? Um, sure. So um talk about some of the agricultural techniques for example that
2: were influenced.
1: Well, I mean I mean you you think sure. about um
0: I was like
2: where do we even start? I mean, I mean everything from from preserving you uh-huh. know you got to think there was no Europeans didn't really know a way of preserving food. They used to eat tainted food. They didn't know how to keep it. There was no refrigeration, but in Africa, they were known to smoke and salt their fish and product in order to preserve it. And that was something that was carried over here. Um, even the indigenous people did the same thing. You know, They knew how to take meats, preserve them where you would not get sick knowing that you did not have refrigeration. So those are techniques that both the indigenous and, you know, those that were enslaved that were here from Africa knew of those techniques. Um, you had everything from, as you could say, barbecuing There's different, you know, variations, but it was known about them doing above and over the flame, but also um, digging into the ground and being able to barbecue meats. Once again, that was something, a technique, you know, that was
1: brought over. Um. Yeah, I mean, I mean and, and more widely too, you I mean, just talk about agriculture as a whole. You know, there would be no United States without the enslaved, right? How do you go from the youngest country in the world to the most richest and powerful country in the world? Is because it was enslaved Africans that supplied free labor. Off the backs of us, you had sugarcane, cotton, rice, and everything else that came out of this country. So we could talk about rice more specifically. You know, the Noma is that they picked up these wild Africans off the plains of Africa and they brought them to the United States and they civilized them. That is far from the truth. The fact of the matter is they've sought out skilled laborers from different parts of the African continent. African continent produced the Ivory Coast and those along West Africa who were rice farmers. They picked those rice farmers up and they dropped them in Charleston, South Carolina. And now we still to this day have some of the most incredible rice that ever came out of any continent. And that is that Charleston, Carolina gold. Um, Mm -hmm. That rice would not exist without the enslaved Africans um, that built an entire industry. So you can't even talk about food in this country without talking about Africans.
2: And then some some of the dishes that we know of here, if you look at um, some of the things that were produced in Africa, people, we talk about it all the time, whether, you know, jollof rice or red rice or gumbo and how okra and how that's the, the word gumbo or filet and what that means. It All all of that information is transitioned over to here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All of that food transitioned to some of the dishes that people love the most. And it was because of what was produced. And not just Africa, it's just the whole diaspora as well. You know, I know we always focus on, you know, West Africa, Africa. But when we talk about those that were slaves here, knowing how the whole transatlantic slave trade happened knowing how large the diaspora is and we can see it through all the foods in this country Absolutely. that's why we always say we're not a monolith because we're from not just africa but you got you know um the caribbean islands you have trinidad and tobago you have everything you got haiti you have mexico you have mexico you know, the Africans as well.
1: that um landed in mexico back but in you know the early 16th, 16th century. century you know they're once again you know um And it's even been um, reported that one in five Mexicans have African blood. You know, so if you look at that and then you understand that and you go into look at the food even further, look at mole. There would be no mole without Africans, you know, chocolate um, and the papitas. They call them papitas, those pumpkin seeds, those kinds of combinations, that thing started on the African continent. And I can tell you from firsthand from during the traveling that we've done. Through research, we go back to Africa, and we were eating what is now what we call chicken yassa. Well, in this country, it's rice and gravy. You know, chicken. That's it's it is the family same family. <laughs> dish that has been passed down and yes. you know loosely translated, and it's now this completely different thing. Um, but you know, it's is this amazing to me the things that we find out about ourselves through food, mm-hmm. um, and I will yeah we'll just keep doing it.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that I really love about food is that when you eat with uh, uh, with others and you wind up sharing your traditions, even not intentionally, but that's just mm-hmm. what happens when you eat together. And then because it's so such a social invention, you take little bits of ideas away and you incorporate it in what you've done just because you liked it when you ate it at somebody else's table. Mm -hmm. And um, that that kind of sharing is something that to me is one of the most fabulous things about food. The other thing that I love about it is, we talk about this in New Orleans all the time. If I eat gumbo at your house, I recognize that it's gumbo. It's different from my gumbo, but it's gumbo. Mm -hmm. My house. You eat my gumbo, it's different from your gumbo, but you still recognize that it's gumbo. Everybody's gumbo is different. Mm-hmm. And, but but we're still connected because it's gumbo and we know it. And right. uh, just that whole way of being connected that way through similar cooking, with you know, with certain basics that that are there that you can recognize in each other. I I just find that to be one of the the best ways that we're joined together, you know. Oh, I like that. <laughs> um I remember um when uh I I ages, a million years ago, I was um in the army as a JAG officer and one of the things we had to do was study at the University of Virginia where they were teaching military law. So in my class there were about I really, really don't remember how many people we were, we were maybe a hundred ish, might have been 97 or something, but around a hundred. And there were several people from different parts of Louisiana and we would get together and make Louisiana food together because we were just all from all over the country And it was always surprising to me how different everybody's gumbo was, (laughs) different things that people put in their gumbo. And yet you still always knew it was gumbo. Mm -hmm. And it it, it was just, that was really um, amazing to me. I also think it's interesting when you find somebody like, and once again, I'm talking about Louisiana and New Orleans, but There'll be people who, because of the railroads or whatever, have their family is from New Orleans, but they say grew up in Oakland or they grew up in Los Angeles or something. And they only had something like gumbo when their family made it. And it was only made for special occasions and things. And when they come to New Orleans, they'll say, that's not gumbo. That's not how you make gumbo. Gumbo is made like this and it has this in it. And it's because they've only had that one gumbo. Mm -hmm. So they don't realize all of the variety that there can Mm -hmm. be. And they don't understand to recognize somebody else's gumbo as gumbo too. Mm -hmm. And you get to see that when somebody has that isolated experience instead of the group experience. I find that interesting too. Anyway, I'm going on. So what's the future of the um, the heirloom group? What are you planning in the future?
1: Well, um, you know, we got a (laughs) a lot of big dreams. We have, through our partners, we purchased a 68 acre farm in Maryland that we're going to be cultivating. Um, You know, we're working on a few different projects that we can't talk about just yet. Um, (laughs) um, You know, we're working, we've been working on a book project and, you know, Tanya and I are probably all over the country, you know, just doing events and, so we've got a lot of big plans for Baltimore, some of the things we're doing, and then some of the things that we're doing outside of Baltimore, like the Maloma Heritage Center down in South okay. Carolina. Tanya is the president of that organization, and no. we are, oh, I'm sorry, is the no. president. <laughs> um, but at, that organization is is very much like what we're doing here. Um, um, uh... It is about us telling the story of our people and the achievements through food, and it's really about us uh giving people an understanding of our contributions.
2: Um, and trying to help preserve a history and a culture because Malone is actually located on St. Helena Island in South Carolina. And if anybody knows that history and Gullet, Geechee and everything that's trying to be d- done to pres- you know preserve those areas and that land and, and showing that a lot of history and things that, you know, are not being lost. Um, that was one of the reasons that drew us to um, South Carolina in the beginning into that area. And it just began as, you know, a conversation between us and other people and on a trip to Africa and back, and it wound up evolving into this. And we have so many people that are involved, you know, in this project. Adrian Lipscomb, who's out of Austin, Texas. Shama Bailey, who's, you yeah. know, executive and owner, one of the owners of The Gray. Um, Michael Twitty has been involved. You know, people have also given input to Chef BJ Dennis. You know, Adanago oh. Brown is part of Rooster the Glory Tours. Is how everything evolved and started with her. It's you know, it's, we have so many people that are involved, and we're just looking to see, you know, bringing this into fruition. There's been a long road getting this project up and running, be, only because we start we started doing COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like probably the worst time to start things because you end up not being able to get things done quickly, going through the processes, and things will slow down. But slowly but surely, we keep moving forward and we're, we're getting to their finish line. So 2024 looks like a good start for us. Oh, when it comes to, when comes to that and to what we're doing in Maryland, you know, with the farm that we have here.
0: Uh huh. And what is the name of your farm again?
2: So the farm in Maryland is called, <clears throat> excuse me, it's called Gabriel Fields. It was actually named for a man that was enslaved in Calvert County that wound up helping the British during the war. And, you know, that was when they were promised them, you know, freedom or land. And at that time from here, it was either to Trinidad or to Nova Scotia. And he was promised land in Nova Scotia. We were researching to see if he was ever received that land, because when he got there, I think he was only like 16 or 13, he was underage and they didn't really give him that land at that time. And we don't know if he ever eventually got it in the future, but we do know of his history. And that tie just means so much to me because I've traced my family history back to the early 1800s in Calvert County, Maryland as well. So I've had like one, you know, my mother's family that has been in the state of Maryland since the early 1800s. And I've been continuing to to trace that history back. From there as well.
0: Wow, wow. Well, it sounds like you have really wonderful plans, and it sounds very, very exciting. I think you're doing really good work, and I'm really excited to talk about it. And I'm looking forward to your book when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, thanks so much for for being with us today. And yes, we should all. Next time I have a bowl of gumbo, I'm going to think about you.
1: <laughs> likewise, likewise. Thank you so much.
0: All right, bye bye. good day. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the nitty grits network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, You can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.